Welcome to PQ Talk on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Damania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital. And we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things meded in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. Welcome to our episode of a 16-year-old male with high-grade fever and abdominal pain. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A 16-year-old male presents with high-grade fever, abdominal pain, and rash. The patient began experiencing a high-grade fever up to 102 degrees Fahrenheit and fatigue for the past five days. Over the past two days, he has developed diffuse abdominal pain accompanied by vomiting and diarrhea. The patient also noticed a non-pruritic maculopapular rash on his trunk and extremities yesterday. The patient has a history of mild asthma controlled with a rescue albuterol inhaler, no history of hospitalization, surgeries, or other significant medical issues. He uses an albuterol inhaler as needed for his asthma symptoms. He's up to date on all immunizations, including COVID-19 vaccine booster four months ago. So with the persistence of the high-grade fever, worsening abdominal pain, the appearance of the rash, and the patient becoming increasingly lethargic, the family now presents to medical attention urgently. Vital signs on arrival to the emergency department include a temperature of 39.6 degrees centigrade, heart rate of 135, respiratory rate of 24, and blood pressure low at 88 over 50. His oxygen saturation is 95% on room air. Now, when you examine this patient, the patient appears acutely ill, uncomfortable, and lethargic. There is a diffuse, non-pruritic maculopapular rash on the trunk and extremities with areas of petechiae. Cardiovascular exam reveals tachycardia and muffled heart sounds. Perfusion is four to five seconds peripherally. Respiratory exam demonstrates labored breathing with decreased breath sounds at the bases bilaterally. The abdomen is markedly distended, diffusely tender, and there is rebound and guarding present. Neurologically, the patient is somnolent but arousable to verbal stimuli, and there are no focal neurological deficits. Let's go ahead and move into the labs now. The laboratory findings actually show elevated WBC count, a moderate anemia, thrombocytopenia, and markedly elevated liver enzymes and an elevated creatinine. Inflammatory markers, including CRP and ESR, are significantly elevated. Imaging reveals bilateral pleural effusions on chest x-ray and a moderately enlarged liver with mild ascites on abdominal ultrasound. Blood cultures are pending and the COVID-19 PCR is negative. Patient receives IV fluid resuscitation, antipyretics, and is started on broad-spectrum empiric antibiotics. Supplemental oxygen is administered via high-flow nasal cannula to maintain appropriate oxygen saturation and reduce the work of breathing. To summarize key elements from our case, this patient is a 16-year-old male who presents with high-grade fever for five days, abdominal pain, rash, and recent onset of lethargy. The patient exhibits tachycardia, hypotension, and respiratory distress. Labs indicate elevated WBC, anemia, thrombocytopenia, 
elevated liver enzymes, creatinine, and inflammatory markers. Imaging reveals pleural effusions and liver enlargement with ascites. So Pradeep, do you mind at this point giving me an idea of your thought process and what you feel is the working diagnosis? The patient was admitted to the PICU because of high fever, tachycardia, low blood pressure, and difficulty breathing, which all suggests a quickly worsening and potentially life-threatening situation. Based on the details from this case, here are a few possible diagnoses we should initially consider. A severe bacterial infection, such as septic shock, secondary to complicated pneumonia, characterized by sudden onset of fever, elevated white count, and hypotension on exam. Atypical presentation of appendicitis or cholecystitis, considering the patient's abdominal pain, distension, and elevated liver enzymes, albeit with nonspecific imaging findings. Toxic shock syndrome, suggested by the presence of fever, rash, and multi-organs involvement, including cardiovascular, respiratory, and hepatic manifestations. And finally, a systemic inflammatory process, which includes multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, commonly known as MISC, which is plausible given the patient's age, recent COVID-19 vaccination, and symptoms involving multiple organ systems, along with inflammatory markers. I would also add an atypical presentation of Kawasaki disease, which is less likely due to the patient's age, although it cannot be ruled out given the fever, rash, and cardiovascular involvement. That was a great differential, Pradeep. And, you know, as we narrow down what this patient might have, I think it's really important for us to consider that we have a branch point decision to make. And that is if the patient is going to be progressively hypotensive and we think that there is myocardial involvement, what would be an appropriate presser to use in this patient? Do you mind elaborating a little bit on this, please? Rahul, that's a great question and something that we encounter in the PQ all the time. As a quick background, vasopressors are often necessary when a patient's heart or circulatory function isn't improving even after making sure that initial fluid resuscitation is adequate. These medications work by influencing the biochemical and neurochemical pathways that help control blood vessel tone, contractility of the heart, and the heart rate itself. It's crucial to understand how these vasoactive agents work and their specific pharmacological properties, as well as how patients' own response to their critical illness might impact how they react to the drug. Also, it's important to note that a patient's critical condition can also influence drug clearance, so the effects we read about in textbooks might not be exactly what we see at the bedside. Absolutely, Pradeep. And, you know, what we should do is let's organize the decision of which presser to choose by going through each of the potential vasopressor options we have in our armamentarium, how they work, and the pros and cons of each one. Now, before we get into that, when it comes to shock, one of the classical teachings which we think about is to categorize the shock as cold shock, where the patient has cool extremities, delayed cap refill, and poor perfusion, versus warm shock where the patient is flushed, has flash capillary refill, and hyperdynamic perfusion. So, Pradeep, do you mind shedding some light on this cold versus warm shock characterization? That's an interesting question. Classically, we have been taught to think about 
shock in terms of cold and warm categories. As you alluded to, cold shock is typically associated with cool extremities, delayed cap refill, and poor perfusion, while warm shock is characterized by flushed skin, rapid capillary refill, hyperdynamic perfusion. However, recent guidelines have moved away from relying solely on this bedside clinical science to categorize septic shock in children. The 2020 Surviving Sepsis Campaign International Guidelines for the Management of Septic Shock and Sepsis-Associated Organ Dysfunction in Children suggest not using this clinical science in isolation to label septic shock as warm or cold. This recommendation stems from the weak recommendation and very low-quality evidence supporting this classification. Instead, it's crucial to take a more comprehensive approach when evaluating and managing shock in pediatric patients, considering a variety of factors beyond this traditional bedside signs. Absolutely, Pradeep. And, you know, interestingly, an article published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2021 entitled Clinical Classification of Cold and Warm Shock, Is There a Signal in the Noise?, played a bit of a devil's advocate on the surviving sepsis guidelines. You know, in fact, it really brought up the fact that it may be a bit of an uncomfortable recommendation as we frequently rely on our bedside assessments to drive care. It is also noted that we are subject to bias, and at times, it's hard for us to really understand what portion of the assessment is true, quote, signal versus noise and a factor which we may need to exclude. You bring up a great point. It's important to remember that skin blood flow, as determined by factors like cap refill time and extremity temperature, may not accurately represent the true state of a patient's circulation. This is because various organs such as the muscles, the gut, coronary system, the renal system, and the brain all have their own unique autoregulation processes. Interestingly, research has shown that there's no clear benefit to choosing a vasoactive agent based on the traditional classification of shock type. In a study comparing vasoactive choices and clinical outcomes, investigators found that factors like extremity temperature, cap refill, and pulse strength were the primary drivers for clinicians to categorize a patient as having warm or cold shock. Pulse pressure and diastolic pressure, however, didn't play a significant role in this decision-making processes. Even more fascinating, when the studies simulated random allocations of shock type, the vasoactive agent choices were just as likely to match these random classifications as the one made by clinicians. This finding further emphasizes the need to move beyond the traditional warm or cold shock categorization and focus on more comprehensive approach when evaluating and managing pediatric shock patients. Absolutely. So, you know, let's go ahead and summarize. Selecting the right presser for pediatric patients really involves several challenges, including a lack of standardization and clinical examination, discordance between shock elements, and individual variability in response to medications. Additionally, skin perfusion might not accurately reflect vital organ perfusion, and optimal therapeutic hemodynamicals for children are really unknown. And so recognizing trends in surrogates of cardiac output and constantly reevaluating as you make management decisions are at least some mitigation strategies which we can consider to address these challenges. Rahul, 
Let's go through a quick multiple choice question to really kick off a rapid review of pressers. Absolutely, Pradeep. So let's go through this question. A 14-year-old with toxic shock syndrome due to osteomyelitis and staphylococcal aureus bacteremia presents with tachycardia, hypotension, and tachypnea. Clinical exam reveals diffuse erythema, bounding pulses, and flash capillary refill. After aggressive fluid resuscitation and central venous catheter placement, his blood pressure slightly improves to 90 over 21. Which vasoactive infusion should be initiated at this time? A, dobutamine. B, dopamine. C, norepinephrine. D, epinephrine. Or E, milrinone. Rahul, in this particular case, the most appropriate choice of vasoactive infusion would be option C, norepinephrine. The patient is presenting with toxic shock syndrome, which often involves a distributive shock, which is characterized by vasodilatation and low systemic vascular resistance. Norepinephrine, a potent alpha-adrenergic agonist, helps increase vascular tone and subsequently improves blood pressure. It also has some beta-adrenergic effects, which can aid in supporting cardiac function. Given the patient's hypotension and the clinical contacts, norepinephrine seems to be the most suitable option to address patient's hemodynamic instability. So, Pradeep, what would be the pros and cons to using norepinephrine in a distributive shock picture like we saw in septic and in toxic shock syndrome? The pros of using norepinephrine in distributive shock include its potent vasoconstrictive effects, which are beneficial in shock states characterized by excessive vasodilatation. Norepinephrine also possesses inotropic activity at the myocardial beta-1 adrenoreceptor, supporting cardiac function without significant chronotropic effects, as its low binding affinity for beta-2 adrenoreceptors limits its ability to impact heart rate. Additionally, norepinephrine increases venous tone, facilitating increased venous return, and generally has little effect on pulmonary vascular resistance in patients with normal pulmonary vasculature. Now, this is very helpful, and I'd love to kind of see the other side of the coin. What would be the cons of norepinephrine use? There are cons to using norepinephrine in distributive shock as well. Its use should be limited to situations with uh, adequate intravascular volume as improper use can decrease end-organ perfusion and lead to ischemia, particularly in the kidney and the gut. In patients with pulmonary hypertension or increased muscularization of pulmonary vasculature, norepinephrine may increase pulmonary vascular resistance and right ventricular afterload. Furthermore, extravasation of norepinephrine can cause severe tissue necrosis. So it should be infused only through central venous sites. If extravasation occurs, treatment with alpha-adrenergic antagonist phentolamine can help manage the affected area. So Rahul, I think we need to be aware that in case of an emergency, before placement of a central line, it's okay to start a very low-dose infusion of norepinephrine through a PIV. Absolutely, Pradeep. And You know, just to summarize, norepinephrine, commonly viewed as a vasoconstrictor, remember, also has a high affinity for cardiac beta-1 at adrenal receptors due to its role as a neurotransmitter in sympathetic nerves. 
This enables it to produce some ionotropic actions alongside with the alpha-1 mediated increase in vascular resistance. Now, there is minimal effect on beta-2 adrenoreceptors, and so it has little effect on the atrial pacemaker as well as even the vascular tone that is beta-2 mediated. Now, in adult studies of cardiogenic shock, norepinephrine actually has been shown to be superior to epinephrine. And so just to really bring home the point, norepinephrine both has alpha-1 and some beta-1 activity. Rahul, our next presser we want to highlight is epinephrine. And to effectively talk about this, let's contrast it to norepinephrine. All right. So, you know, epinephrine and norepinephrine differ in their actions on adrenergic receptors and their effects on various circulations. Epinephrine acts on all adrenal receptors, with low infusion primarily impacting beta-1 and beta-2 adrenal receptors. It is typically used in post-arrest settings, but it can be transitioned to another vasoactive depending on the clinical state. In contrast to norepinephrine, epinephrine has hemodynamic and metabolic effects to keep in mind. At low to moderate doses, epinephrine redirects increased cardiac output towards skeletal muscles and away from splanchnic and renal circulations, and that's due to the beta-2 mediated effect. Adding to our discussion, I think it's worth noting that epinephrine has direct effects on coronary perfusion depending on the infusion dose. At lower doses, it can reduce diastolic blood pressure due to its beta-2 adrenergic effect, while still increasing systolic blood pressure with its positive beta-1 mediated ionotropic effect. This leads to an increase in pulse pressure. However, the rise in contractility and heart rate also increases myocardial oxygen demand, which in turn boosts coronary blood flow if you have a relatively normally functioning heart. At higher infusion doses, epinephrine increases systemic vascular resistance leading to increased afterload, and this is a alpha-1 mediated effect. This combined with an increased heart rate significantly elevates myocardial oxygen demand, which is not favorable for patients with cardiogenic shock like we saw in our case. So here's a quick little active recall question. Which vasopressor acts on the alpha-1 receptor that is structurally similar to epinephrine and elevates the systemic or peripheral vascular resistance. If our listeners said phenylephrine, they're absolutely correct. Phenylephrine is similar to norepinephrine. It causes significant arterial vasoconstriction and thus elevates SVR and PVR. It has no inotropic properties. Therefore, if cardiac function is impaired, cardiac output may be reduced by the increased afterload, even though the blood pressure increases. Now, at this juncture, it's essential to underscore a fundamental principle. Whenever vasopressors come into the conversation, concurrently, we should be discussing central access in our patients. Given that these vasopressors have the potential to inflict considerable peripheral and systemic harm if they inadvertently leak into the soft tissue, securing a central line becomes a vital priority. It's not just important, it's an absolute necessity for an effective team coordination and patient safety. These children likely will need an arterial line as well to see beat-to-beat -beat changes in blood pressure. But like you mentioned, Pradeep, I completely agree that in an emergent situation, you can start epinephrine, norepinephrine infusions at low doses while you are discussing central line access. 
So to wrap up this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to do a quick rapid review of common vasopressors in the PICU. Let's talk about dopamine. What is dopamine's mechanism of action? It's a dose-dependent effect. A low dose, uh, which is about one to five microgram per kilo per minute, you primarily get renal, splanchnic, vasodilatation. You can get some natriuresis by the D1 receptor effect. As you increase the dose, you typically at a dose of five to eight microgram per kilo per minute, you'll see an increase in inotropy because of its beta effects. And then at a much higher dose, which is like 10 micrograms per kilo per minute and above, uh, you will primarily get the alpha effects, which is increase in SVR and PVR. Of note, we are not using dopamine in our ICU. It sometimes tends to be used in emergent situations in the ED and at outlying facilities because it's readily available and can be given very fast to the patient. Absolutely. And just to kind of add to that, please note that there's little to no evidence supporting the use of renal low-dose dopamine in children with shock. And typically, we go for direct-acting vasoactive agents like we've talked about, namely epinephrine and norepinephrine. So the next presser we're going to be talking about is dobutamine. What's the mechanism of action of dobutamine? So dobutamine is primarily a beta-1 agonist. So it increases chronotropy and inotropy. Dobutamine is unique. It can actually have a long-lasting active metabolite, 3-O-methyldobutamine, that has alpha-1 antagonistic activity. We typically use dobutamine to improve cardiac function in the failing heart. Although dobutamine can improve myocardial performance, often without significant tachycardia, it still increases the myocardial oxygen consumption and can cause tachydysrhythmias. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up with vasopressin. Now, vasopressin is used in the PICU for two indications. A, it is used for refractory vasodilatory shock via its V1 receptor effects, and B, central diabetes insipidus via its V2 receptor effects. And I think it's important for us to compare and contrast. V1 is vasoconstriction. V2 is more of the aquaporins and bringing in free water. Yes, Rahul. Vasopressin has a unique advantage of not being dependent on the adrenergic system. And thus, we can use it in settings where norepinephrine or epinephrine are not effective. Unlike all vasoconstricting agents, vasopressin may reduce PBR through stimulation of nitric oxide release mediated by action at the pulmonary endothelial oxytocin receptors. So it may be useful in unstable patients with pulmonary hypertension. As we use it in conjunction with norepi in refractory states, it's important to note that there is no good adult and limited pediatric data that have shown improved outcomes when using low-dose vasopressin versus norepinephrine in septic shock. All right, Pradeep. That was a lot today, and we covered a breadth of pharmacological agents, and I think my take-home points would be the following. You know, when considering a vasoactive, it is of utmost importance to consider the mechanism of action and the relevant dose-dependent effects. You also want to consider the adverse effects of the vasoactive, and you want to keep examining your patient and monitor labs and urine output to assess end-organ dysfunction. Once you have a patient that is going to be hemodynamically more stable, let's say the patient in our case with MISC ended up getting started on epinephrine and was more stable from a blood pressure standpoint, this may be a good time to 
integrate one more vasopressor agent that we haven't talked about just yet, and that is milrinone. Now, milrinone is going to be a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. And what it's going to do is it's going to increase cyclic AMP, and you're going to get a trifold effect. You're going to get a increase in ionotropy, you are going to get vasodilation and a reduction in afterload, and you are going to get cardiac relaxation, what we call lucitropy, to improve your diastolic function and ultimately your preload. So I think that it's important for us to recognize we've talked about so many different vasopressors, but then understanding the use and role of milrinone, which we've briefly mentioned in our prior cardiac episodes, will be important for us to consider once the patient is stabilized. The other point that I just want to make is that milrinone has a pretty long half-life. So any minute changes that you are going to be making with milrinone, you want to consider that the half-life is about three to six hours, and that may play into your management decisions on rounds. Yeah, I think uh, most of the times we actually start milrinone in the ICU at about 0.3 and take it anyway up to 0.7 micrograms per kilo per minute. Like you pointed out, it has a long half-life, so you can turn it off just like that rather than trying to titrate it down like epinephrine or norepinephrine. Absolutely. So I think that we ended up having a great episode today and another episode that will be helpful for you to review is our episode on oxygen delivery. So please make sure you check out that on our website, PICU.com on call. This concludes our podcast episode on vasoactive use in the PICU. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, PICUDocOnCall.org which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by myself, Pradeep Kamath, and Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you for listening. Music